If you would, open in your Bibles with me to Hebrews 10. We'll actually be in chapter uh, chapter 11, of course. And I'm going to read some of the passages out of order, and it'll make sense why. Uh, But you can hold your place there at the conclusion of chapter 11 in verses 32 through 38. So Hebrews, and I'll start reading in chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land with which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. He who has near to hear, let him hear. So just a few things by way of introduction. My objective is to focus on the life of David and answer some key questions about his life in the context of Hebrews 11. And some of you may be a little concerned. This is a sermon on one word. David, there's no mention of any of his exploits or anything that he did specifically attached to his name. And on the one hand, yes, we are having one sermon on one word. We've done this before with the word propitiation, but that makes total sense why we would do that. On the other hand, I'm not in a hurry. Um, That said, we will bring this whole study in Hebrews to a close soon. And in time for the weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll be in chapter 11 with those opening verses. 
But what we need to do, we need to really take to heart what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 11. He is giving us a way to reconsider and reinterpret the entire Old Testament. There's been a few things that have seemed counterintuitive. He skips over events that maybe we would include if we were to tell the story. He leaves certain figures out. He doesn't even mention them when he gets down to kind of the the list of all these names. And in a sense, he, he is jostling our expectations. Those of you who are involved in education or teaching know that this is part of the process to help people learn, is to upset or overturn people's expectations when they're learning. That's part of what he's doing in teaching us how we're to read our Old Testament. That's obviously not the only point of Hebrews 11, but it is a major point. It is one of the best and most clear grids that the New Testament gives us to understand the whole narrative. So, with that said, how to preach one sermon on David. Even if we narrow it down just to a consideration of the life of David in the context of faith, we just have so much to talk about. There would be too much to cover. The majority of my mental preparation for this message was trying to decide just how to go about it. You could do an episodic approach, like a, like a series of episodes of David's life. It would take multiple sermons, at least. You could choose a, a key psalm. We actually did this in our men's prayer breakfast last time. We just walked through Psalm 3 and discussed it and how it related to David's life. My favorite plan, this is what I almost did, is to focus on the time of David's life before he came to power. So after he was anointed king, through his trials, running for his life from Saul. We could also focus on the Davidic covenant. That might be my favorite, uh, but that would be a sermon series in itself. the, The text calls for many, many messages if we're going to fully explore the Davidic covenant and what it means for us. And while David is not my favorite person in the Bible, other than Jesus, obviously, if, if, if you say someone other than Jesus is your favorite person, you know, maybe you're just being coy. But uh, I would say maybe Joshua or John the Baptist or Paul. But David is an amazing character. And one of the titles that belongs to our Lord for all time is the son of David. So what are we going to do? I want to use David as an example of how to read your Old Testament. Through the interpretive lens of the New Testament, and specifically through the lens of chapter 11. And that might just be a respectable way of saying, we're trying to do everything in one message to cover David's life. And what you have in your bulletins, if you received one, is a a handout or a printout. And what that is, is it's drawing from all of the places in Hebrews 11 that speak specifically, generally, about all of the people that it's referencing. These are times in the Bible specifically, uh, in in this chapter rather, specifically, that the author of Hebrews uh, refers to all of these heroes of faith. So what what I did there is I took David's name and I put it in the place of where it would say they or them. These are general statements about everyone, and I'm applying it specifically to David. And this is an idea of how you can use this as a grid to understand. And not everything applies to everyone. Some things are left out. 
An example would be quench the power of fire. As far as I could find in the Old Testament, there was no situation in which David dealt with fire directly. So I left out what wouldn't apply and placed in there what would apply to David. And yes, I think this is how you should read your Old Testament. Because the claim of the author in Hebrews 11 is that anyone who received any commendation, any praiseworthiness in the Old Testament, was nothing other than faith. No one received any commendation, any praise, any acceptance of God, except that which was founded on faith. So yes, you can do this. And that's quite a project. If you went through every person in the Old Testament that received any commendation, you can use this grid to overlay their life. For today, we're just going to focus on David. So this is drawing from verse 1 that I read. And if you want to follow along with what I printed out for you, that's fine. But it says, by, it was by faith that the people of old received their commendation in verse 1. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So what I'm saying here is by faith, David received his commendation. And this could be the heading or title of this exercise with David. That's the central claim of the author regarding all of these people. By faith, David, specifically for today, received his commendation. And before we get into all the details of how his life exemplified faith, let me ask you this. What about us? Put your name there in that blank. By faith, Joshua received his commendation. By faith, I received my commendation. Is that how we think of our lives? Is that how we evaluate, evaluate other people? someone's very successful, they often receive commendation from us. They receive praise from us. If they're uh, really effective as individuals, if they're really, uh, they've got it all together, we tend to esteem them. Do we commend people on the basis of faith like God does? Or do we commend people like Samuel himself was tempted to do when Jesse's firstborn came into the room? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So there's a strictness and graciousness that comes from evaluating others and ourselves from the perspective of faith. On the one hand, we'll be very strict because the Bible itself says anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. If it's not rooted in faith in Christ, belief in Him, in some way, if it is not seeking the kingdom of God, it's sinful. No matter how pretty or awesome or organized or powerful or successful it may seem on the outside, or how many dreams you have that it's accomplishing, if it is not rooted in faith, it's sin. But on the other, so that's the strictness. On the other hand, it's graciousness. If if you've if your life is, as it were, a jalopy or a lemon, but it is rooted in faith, and you are living each day trusting in the promises of God, trusting that one day they will come to fruition, then all of that is righteousness and praiseworthy. So through faith, he, David, conquered kingdoms. And for David, this is perhaps a reference to the Philistines or some of them. 
They were not fully eliminated under David's reign, but also many nations that David conquered. He subjected them, and in many cases, he just subjected them to the degree that they were willing to just pay tribute. Just, just leave us alone, and we'll send you all sorts of gold and all, all other types of goods. During David's reign, the size of Israel was practically doubled. He had many military campaigns. He, in, in a sense, he regained the ground lost after the death of Joshua. And thinking of ourselves for a bit, would it not be grand to have this story? Wouldn't it be great if God's calling on our lives was something on the scale of by faith conquering kingdoms? Wouldn't that be nice? And... The central claim of the author here is that all of this military success was by faith. And we need to remember that it was not easy for David. This wasn't just like he showed up and the people ran. That might have happened in some cases. But it was a messy business, to put it lightly. A lot of difficulty. A lot of people died. Israelites The horrors of war were present. And God is saying, through the author of Hebrews, that all of that, the horrors of war and all, David did it through faith. That can make us a little bit uncomfortable. Think of Joshua. If you're reading with us through the Bible reading plan and you read of the conquest of Canaan under Joshua by faith, I mean, it was explicit obedience to the commands of God that they did those things. And David did it by faith. Faith in what? What did he have faith in? God's promises and God's direction. There were many instances where David, before he would even go and assault a city to try and take it, he would pray. In almost every case, he prays and asks, Lord, do you want us to go up and take this city? And the Lord answers, yes. And in one case that I could find, God says, no, set an ambush in a different way this time. So every time David tries to do anything that he's successful and he's praying and he's seeking God's direction, And he's operating on an assumption of God's promises that this land is what God has given to us. So it is rightfully ours. And as we obey God, he will give it into our hands, even if it means a lot of difficulty and decades and decades of war. So for us, as we look at this great uh, kind of summary of all the military exploits of David. Through faith he conquered kingdoms. What of us? What is this, how does this apply to us? We're not called to be conquering kings. Maybe some of you would want that. But the way it applies to us is this. The most difficult things that the Lord has called us to do must be done in faith. The number one way we can know if we're doing it in faith is if we're doing it in prayer. Just like David did. There was no military exploit for David that didn't begin, at least if it were to end in success, that did not begin in prayer. Someone might say, but God has already told us what we're to do. Let's just go and do it. Why should we pray for something that God has already told us to do? God has already given us this land. Why should we pray before we go and attack the Philistines? There are 10,000 ways it will go wrong if it has not begun and carried out by prayer. That's one of the reasons I'm stubborn on this point. 
Further, we need to know that there will be horrors of war, as it were, as we seek to share the faith of David and do the most difficult things that God has given us to do. It's not going to be pretty. As we do what the Lord has commanded us to do, as we act on His promises, as we preach the gospel through our lives and share the message of hope, things will often go terribly wrong. Just like it did for David. Many of his best men died as he was obediently, in faith, conquering kingdoms. And it's not just the opposition of the world. The kingdom of God will not fail But part of the point is to show that it will not fail despite all of our failings and false starts. There's no attitude of triumphalism in real Christianity, brothers and sisters. That that sells really well and it was very popular as I grew up through youth groups and youth messages. Just just follow the Lord and everything's going to go well for you. And it is not so. Even if we're just talking about the inner life, Right? Set aside the prosperity gospel. Hopefully you all know that that's garbage. But I'm talking about the inner life. That things are, you're just going to have peace all the time if you follow the Lord. Are you familiar with the story of David? Have you read the Psalms? No triumphalism here. Through faith he enforced justice. I included this for David. On the one hand, because David was perhaps the best king Israel ever had. And also we can safely assume that perhaps in innumerable instances, David enforced justice. But also because it provides us a space to talk about the apparent one-sided nature of Hebrews 11. We've seen this with Abraham, Moses, and Samson and the people. The author of Hebrews is not very interested in underscoring or highlighting the failures of the people in this book. Isn't that interesting? That would not be our tendency. Our alignment is to underscore failure, especially with people that are not ourselves. So when you read David enforced justice, and he certainly did, the the idea that comes to mind immediately is the situation with Uriah the Hittite in Bathsheba wasn't very much enforcing of justice there. But the author of Hebrews is not so much interested in revisiting all of those failures of these people. No, I think he, he takes it as axiomatic. Something that we should easily remember. Of course, these are humans. These are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. So they're gonna, their lives are going to be full of sin. So we... As people who are beset by weakness, we're very quick to find fault in all the weaknesses of others. For David, he enforced justice, but he also perverted justice at times of his life. So for you, and even for myself, sometimes we have a hard time with David. With his character. How can he be a man after God's own heart? Look at his life. How can Abraham be the man of faith? Look at his life. The way to rephrase this in a way that the author of Hebrews would want us to, I think, is this. Even though David perverted justice, in the end he 
he enforced justice by faith. I'll say that again. Even though David perverted justice at times, in the end, he enforced justice by faith. The idea is this, that there is no forgiveness of any sins outside of faith in Christ. But if you are operating in your life through faith in Christ, faith in the Lord Himself, then all forgiveness is yours. And faith begins a type of life course correcting. That as we trust in God, as we believe in Him, even if our track record is severely questionable, like David's or Abraham's, as we trust the Lord, as we believe in Him, it begins to correct the direction of our lives. So just a few points of application before we move on. Know that this is how faith works from God's perspective, even in spite of your sins. In Ezekiel 18, verses 21 and 22, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. That's stunning. And a God like that makes us uncomfortable because we don't understand his primary alignment to grace. Faith in Christ, even for David, is the embodiment of all the statutes and the life that pleases God. By faith, it's the, this is the point. As we look for the promises of God, God counts that to you as righteousness. I hold out to you today, on Christ's behalf, not only forgiveness, not only pardon, not only restitution, not only expiation and acquittal, but I hold out to you as commissioned by God the righteousness of Christ Himself for you through faith. That can be yours today, as it was for David. His faith was credited to him as righteousness, just like it was for all the rest of these people, even though their track record was severely questionable and shady at times. Righteousness through faith in Christ, that's how it's always worked. Understand that the same God that makes us uncomfortable sometimes by forgiving David is the exact same God we desperately need. Because we have to our credit just as many damnable sins as David. They might be more respectable, more clean sins, but just as damnable. He also obtained promises. The next statement here. This is, I think, for David at least, a reference to the Davidic covenant. One of my favorite themes in all the Old Testament. There's so much to cover, I'm not even going to try But the staggering claim here is this, that David obtained the promise through faith. We need to walk in an awareness of the implications of that for our lives. That God grants David this covenant, this promise, because of David's faith. We know, hopefully, that the the Lord himself works primarily through faith and saves us through faith in Christ. But do we actively live each day with a posture towards God that expects more blessing, more promises, more strength, more conformity to Christ 
More confirmation of His covenant to us through faith in the Son of God. There's real reward to be gained in this life, in the next. Mark 10, 28-31, Peter began to say to him, this is Christ that Peter is speaking to, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And for David... Perhaps the most majestic promise in all of the Old Testament is granted merely because of his faith. And understand this, it wasn't some grand gesture on David's part, some some long accumulation of actions on his part. He merely desires to do something for the Lord out of faith, i.e. build the temple. God tells him, no, Don't do that thing. It's going to be left for someone else. And then grants him the most glorious promise you you might be able to find in the Old Testament. Because of faith. And we serve the same God. God's not taken off guard by David's faith. And it is even a gift from God that David has this faith. But you should know... That it shouldn't matter to you how much faith God has given you. If you believe God, if you are in Christ, if you trust Him, and that's what it means to be a Christian, okay? Set aside everything else. If you trust God, if you believe in the one that He has sent, then you have that mustard seed of faith. And that is enough to walk the same life of faith that David did. And no, it will not result in wealth here in all likelihood. That's not how God operates. But it will result in a wealth here in a different kind. Why not you? Why not you? Why not you be the one, young person, with the very little bit of faith that you have, Maybe it is small. Maybe it's not. Maybe you think it's small. Why not you be the one who begins to live out of faith today and totally sweep us all away with your devotion to the Lord and your commitment to live out His commands? Do you want to see more people being saved? Revival that sweeps our land The glory of God being known and rejoiced in all around. Why not you? Why not today? It's faith. It's not lineage, who your mom and dad are, what church you go to, what nationality you are, what ethnicity you are. It's faith. That's the point here. By faith, David inherited the Davidic covenant. Why not today? Colossians 1, 28 through 29. This was Paul's heartbeat. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Why not you? The only thing that holds you back, brother or sister, is your unwillingness to believe Christ fully. That's it. By faith, David stopped the mouths of lions, escaped the edge of the sword. He was made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So this this is kind of a summary of all the stories we love about David. Think about the lion and the bear that he killed defending his sheep, the giant Goliath. Saul, so many times, escaping the edge of the sword with him or the spear. And we don't have time to go through all of those. One day, maybe we will. But again, the startling claim here is that David did all of this, not through skill, though we can assume safely that he probably had some skill. And it was not through strength or strategy. I'm sure he probably had some of both. But it was because David had faith that he was able to do these things. Do you see your world this way? Even as Solomon says in Proverbs 21, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You can have all the strategy, all the strength, all the skill, all the right methods lined up. You've got, you've got all the degrees that you might want. You might get all the training you might want. But victory belongs to the Lord. And He grants victory to those who trust Him. The Lord is yet deciding behind the scenes, even as we make ready and we try to carry out all our plans. This is why James says, don't say tomorrow we will do this and such. Say, if the Lord wills. He's deeply concerned, even on a daily basis, that we understand we're not going to have any success if it's not the Lord's will. And the, the vision presented here is that God is, is working from heaven, and he's, he's, he's deciding to bring outcomes in favor of those who trust Him. It's almost as if, it is not as if, it is the fact that he is so committed to his own glory that he was. it doesn't matter how weak, how lacking you may be, I will bless you if you trust me. This one trusts me. So look. And it's not going to go perfect like we would want it to go necessarily on the outside. Victory for the Christian definitely means something different than victory for the world. But this should summon us should summon all of us. It's not like sports. There, there is no possible universe in which I can play on a professional football team. Okay, No training methodology that I can embrace right now that can make that happen in the future. I don't possess the genetics or the skills to do that. It's not like academics. There are some people that are smarter than you and that will always be smarter than you. And it's not like anything else. Some people, if you're like, like royalty, if you're not born in that family, you can't be the king unless you like build an army and come and take it away from them. But it's not like anything else. If you have faith, merely faith, trust in the Lord, then this is how God works through the lives of those who trust Him. 
So let's get to it. But get to what? What do we get to? Well, you could start with the one and other commands in the New Testament. But how about just this one? A life that, that is birthed from trusting in the Lord. Okay, let's, let's just go to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe that? I'd venture to say that most of us struggle mightily to believe that. Because, I I mean, maybe I'm just reading it wrong, but I, I think it would change a lot about the things we do, the things we worry about. Has it changed anything for you? Trust the trustworthiness of God? Does it, does it move the needle at all for you? Does it make you alter your plans or dreams at all? Because God is trustworthy and He will make good on His promises. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. But to make sure that we don't think it will all go well for us as the world defines things going well. If we follow the Lord in faith this way, he moves on. But he, David, was destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of him. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. As I read that, hopefully are coming to your mind all the stories of David's affliction. There are at least two instances where this was the case in a very tangible way. After being anointed king, but not yet king, as Paul pursued him and tried to kill him. For a long time, David had to even flee out of his own country that he had been anointed king of. And lives with the Philistines. And then with Absalom's insurrection, his son tries to take the throne from him and he has to flee to the other side of the Jordan. So for the author of Hebrews, emphasizing their suffering is important so that for a couple of reasons, but first, so that we don't misunderstand what a life filled with faith looks like. If you trust the Lord, things might on the outside look like they're even getting worse for you. Talk to our brothers and sisters who are converted out of a Muslim background. You'll know exactly what it is I'm talking about. And for David, we need to understand that it was in this most difficult times that his heart was right with the Lord. You you need only read just a few psalms to see this. When things are really going bad outwardly for David is when we get the most beautiful reflections on the trustworthiness of God in all the Bible. We see that God becomes David's Treasure, even as he might be going without food as he's hiding in caves from Saul. He says, my my soul is panting and thirsting for you, God. You can just read Psalm 18. That's when I consider just going through the entire thing this morning. You can just read through that later this afternoon if you feel so led. It's in the context of great trials that David's faith is strengthened. 
And just like everyone else, our faith, which leads to our worthiness in God's sight, is often or best strengthened through the fires of affliction. We were reading this morning in the Proverbs. There's a kiln for uh, pottery and a, a, a fire refines gold. A crucible, that's the word I'm looking for. This is off the cuff. There's crucible for silver, but trials for the heart of man. That God works through trial to increase the purity of our hearts. How would you have felt if your anointed king, out of all your brothers, Samuel the prophet himself comes and anoints you king? And then your life, in very short order, becomes one of running for your life and having to be in exile. How would you feel? Would you be tempted to doubt the promises of God? Don't waste your affliction. As we are brought to the brink, as in our hearts wells up a seed of doubt that would cause us to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness, to question His promises, there are only three options, I think, three general options. You can try frantically to fix the affliction and to see wholeness and happiness on the other side of fixing the problem, getting out of the exilic experience. That's one way. The second way is to just be stoic and pretend it's not happening. Just get it together and become more jaded and hard-hearted and cold and unfeeling. And the third option, I think this is the only option for us, is to endure by faith. That's how we need to read this portion of Scripture, verses 32 through 38, that they endured the trial through faith. It wasn't that God sent them these things necessarily because they had faith. It's they were able to trust God even as they're being sawn in two because they had trust, real, grounded trust in the resurrected Son of God, even as they saw the promises concerning Him from afar. And this, is bringing, this next section is bringing in verses 13 through 16 to bear on David's life. And I think it does apply. David died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that he was a stranger in exile on the earth. This is startling in any case, applied to any person in Hebrews 11 or any of the Old Testament, that they died not receiving the things promised because it immediately calls into question the trustworthiness of God. This is true of all of them, though, and especially David, that he died not receiving the things promised. Even though he was promised all the things pertaining to the Davidic covenant, He died without gaining any of it or seeing any of it. I mean, almost contained within the promise itself is that the next king, the king that might fulfill these promises, Solomon, in at least a a preemptive way, David has to die first before Solomon is made king. 
And even though he was promised all these things, he has hope. It's not merely a formality for God to give these promises to some people and then just give them to their descendants. Does that feel like faithfulness to you? I'm going to make these promises to you, Abraham, but you're never going to get them. It's just going to be for people that come thousands of years later. Does that feel like a real promise? Oh, don't worry. Yeah, you'll be buried. You'll die and all this, and you'll never see it. It'll come to your descendants. That's not faith for these people. They believed with rock-solid assurance that they would see God faithfully keep these promises for them. They had a heavenly expectation. David had a heavenly expectation that he himself would see the fulfillment of all these promises. Just as John Newton says in the old hymn, Amazing Grace, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. There's another hymn I love. It's, it's Jesus lives and so shall I. And just in the title itself, you see how powerful it is. Because Jesus lives, so shall I. It's not saying Jesus lives and so do I. Hopefully if you're singing, you're alive. The idea is that Jesus lives and so shall I one day. After I face the first death, I will live because Christ Lives. Does his word secure your hope? Are you familiar enough with it for his word to secure your hope? But where do we see this in David's life? Where, where can we see, where can we detect that he greeted them from afar? That he acknowledged in some sense that he was a, a stranger and an exile in the world? In Psalm 16, he says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoiced. My flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not here necessarily in the palace, not necessarily wherever else I would be, but at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol, as the Old Testament says. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And there's so many more. But turn to Psalm 21, verses 1 through 7. We've discussed this before. Psalm 21, 1 through 7. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. This is David. And in your salvation, how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked of you, 
and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now, obviously, we would apply this to Christ in the most ultimate sense. But David is not writing for someone else only. He is writing for himself that he has asked the Lord and the Lord has granted. He has trust in the Lord that God has granted him length of days forever and ever. For he made it clear, or people who speak this way make it clear that he was seeking a homeland. If David had been thinking of Bethlehem or Jerusalem, he would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, he desires desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Think of the incident of the well at Bethlehem, one of my favorite stories regarding David. Do you remember the story? He's stationed outside of his hometown, Bethlehem. And the Philistines have uh, a garrison there. And David makes an offhand remark of how much he would desire to drink out of the well of Bethlehem, where he grew up. And so a couple of his mighty men go and overthrow the garrison, draw water out of the well in the center of the city, and bring it out back to David. And he says, I'm, I'm not going to drink the, the life of these men, essentially. They, they risk their lives to get this for me, and he turns it into a drink offering for the Lord. A very moving story. And so he loves Bethlehem. And there is so much in the Psalms about David's love for Zion, the holy hill of God, Jerusalem. He loves these places. But in Psalm 27, we've talked about this one before as well. One thing I ask that I would seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This is before the temple was built. He's not talking about the earthly temple because God already told him he couldn't build it. He's talking about the heavenly temple. One thing I ask, I, yeah, I could go, I'm the king. I could go back and visit Bethlehem whenever I want. I can, I'm in Jerusalem. I've got the nicest palace you've ever, ever imagined. But the one thing I want, that I will seek, is to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. He's seeking a better country, a heavenly one. See now that this is part of the point of this chapter, that future hope alters your life presently. At the end of Psalm 27, here's what David says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So as he is seeking and desiring to dwell in the house of the Lord all his days, he is commending us to take courage and to wait on the Lord. When you have your hope fully set on God fulfilling his promises for you in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, then it changes your life today. 
Wherever you have set your hope, it sets the agenda for your life today. That's just axiomatic for all humans. Wherever your hope is, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you have set your hope in, it will determine what your life looks like. And if your hope is set in glory with the Lord at His right hand, where there are pleasures forevermore... If your desire, like David, is to dwell in the house of the Lord all your days, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, it changes your life today. It's not just a hope or a document that you can go take back up when you're facing death. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called the God of David. For he has prepared for him a city This is so moving. I hope you can see how moving this is. And this is the same for us if you were to put your name there. Therefore, because he or she has trusted in me and placed his or her hope in my promises coming to fruition in the new heavens and in the new earth, I am not ashamed to be called his or her God. On the basis of of that future expectation and hope for the homeland. What's this idea of shame? God is not ashamed to be called their God. Is that even possible for God to feel shame? If you've read the Old Testament, you know that there are these persistent themes of impurity and defilement. And any sin defiles us before God. Any uncleanliness defiles us before God. It makes us unfit to approach Him. And it summons His wrath if we bring that impurity into His presence. A life like David's life? Impurity. Sin. A life like your life? Think about your life. Impurity. Defilement. Sin. And the startling point is, yes, God is not ashamed to stand at David's side, even as Christ himself is his advocate and say, this one is mine. And mystery of mysteries, he also says, and I am his. As the old song says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Why? Why is God not ashamed to claim David as his? To say, I am his and he is mine? Because he trusts God. Because David trusted him. And that trust was not just plodding through life, hoping for the best one day. It was a deeply grounded assurance That at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, and you will not abandon my soul to death. And it will be so with you one day. God will not be ashamed to be called your God. To even pronounce it in the courtroom of heaven, I am his, he is mine. This is the God that we gather to worship and talk about. Will you this moment be saved today? Believe God. That smallest grain of sand that is faith. 
that begins to say, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yields no food, the flock cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even if you are a great sinner like David, and plot twist, you are. And even if you have had to suffer so much as a result of your sins and the sins of others, like David did, yet God will not be now or forevermore ashamed to link His name with your name and to give you a seat at the table and to adopt you into His family and to betroth you to His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no embarrassment on God's part for anything about your life if you trust him. And though David was commended through faith, he did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, David should not be made perfect. I don't want to spill all the beans with this passage because when we get back from Texas, this will be in the middle of December. I'm going to preach on these last verses of Hebrews 11. I'm very excited about them. There's, there's a ton to talk about here. So Lord willing, we will preach on this uh, later. But for now, let's answer the question with respect to David. The logic of this passage is fascinating. It answered the question... It answers the question, why didn't David receive the fulfillment of the promises he was given? Is it, I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like all these amazing promises that the people in the Old Testament were given. Why is it that God decided not to give them the fulfillment of the promises? At least in the best way, in the most meaningful parts of those promises, they were not fulfilled. Why is that? Was it just because they were failures? No, because God grants promises through faith. And it's not like David loses faith and then God's like, well, I guess I can't give you all the fulfillment of the promises. It was part of God's plan not to bring the fulfillment of the promises then. Why? Because God prepared something better for us. Look at the verse. Did not receive what was promised since God had prepared something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This isn't an analogy like we find in Romans with the fig tree, or the the olive tree, rather. God's plan to bless David, even though the promises that David were given were amazing, and God is going to fulfill them for him one day, they were never meant to be fulfilled in his life because of what God was planning to do in us. In Christ. The glorious mystery here, brothers and sisters, is that all the Old Testament saints and their final blessedness through the blessing that God has given to us is in Christ. Jesus is that better thing. Since God had provided something better, it's almost like the author of Hebrews is being coy here because he's already talked about the high priest who is Jesus and he's going to return to this theme at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us looking to Jesus. He is that better thing. 
So God knows and structures all of the stories of the Old Testament in a way to underscore this reality. Even if I were to give you all of these promises that I have, have given to you right now, it wouldn't be the best thing for you. Because the best thing for you is Christ. He is the one for whom you were made. And believe it or not, we share solidarity with those brothers and sisters in the Old Testament. There are promises God has made to you that it would be better for you, for them not to be fulfilled here, but only when Christ returns. Because He is the one for whom you were made. So, don't lose heart. As you live your life trying to build it on the promises of God and there seems to be discontinuity between the promises of God and your life, just think of Abraham. Granted the promises of the land and he has to walk around as a sojourner. David, anointed king for a time, he's got to walk around as an exile. Granted that his kingdom would know no end, but he's got to die first. He doesn't even get to see it. There is discontinuity even in our lives. When we look at all the grand promises of God, but know this, He has prepared something better for you. That in the last great day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, all the promises of God will be yes and amen because Christ will stand in the flesh and every eye will see. And at that point will be made perfect. That apart from us, David should not be made perfect. We're not made perfect yet. This sets us up for chapter 12. The city that God has prepared for His people. Those He is not ashamed of because they have faith in Him. Because they trust in Him will be made perfect. And I will end end for you this exhortation. If you know that this is God's plan, through faith to Bring to pass a united people of God who are perfect forever. Just as we talked about before, if your future hope is real, it will inform your life now. If your hope is the same plan that God has for your life, that you will be made perfect in glory in one united people in heaven, then that changes your life now. You will then be striving for a life of holiness and unity with His people here. Or else your claim that that is your hope is invalid. May we all give thanks to the God who gives us grace for this very thing. I'll pray. And if the Lord has laid it on your heart to pray a prayer of thanksgiving after I pray, please feel free to do so. And then I'll conclude us with another prayer. Father, we are thankful for all that you have done for preparing us for this heavenly country. Here we have no lasting city. But you have prepared for us a city that has foundations that can't be moved. Help us draw strength from the example of David and know that you are trustworthy. And live life with boldness, knowing that you mean all of the promises that you give. And that one day they will all be completely fulfilled. Thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. In Jesus' name.